Well, good morning again. It's hard to break up a, a great conversation, but uh, it's got to happen sometime. And uh, it's great to have these children that God's blessed us with in our, in our church family. And we're thankful for all of our children's church teachers and helpers. And we as parents especially appreciate them. Um, I know I do. So thank you to everyone who helps in that, in that ministry. I invite you now to bow with me and let's enter God's word with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. I pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit you would speak through it to each one of us. I ask that you would speak through me, your servant. Give me the boldness to speak this word that you've laid on my heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now many years ago, a man had heard that there was no view on earth so stunningly beautiful as one particular vista high up in the Swiss Alps. So desiring to see this stunning view for himself, the man finally, after many years of planning, he hired an experienced mountain guide to lead him there. At first, the paths were fairly easy, but the higher they went, the more narrow and steep they soon became. Then they came to a high and remote mountain pass, where to the man's dismay, he saw the already narrow path had almost been entirely washed out. What could he do? To his left was a sheer rock cliff, and to his right was a precipice that dropped straight down some 1,000 feet. Taking a quick peek over the edge, the man felt his head begin to spin and his knees began to buckle. Every instinct within him screamed to shrink back and to an attempt a hasty retreat. But at that exact moment, his guide shouted back to him, Do not look down or you're a dead man. Keep your eyes only on me. Watch exactly where I put my feet and put yours there as well. While hearing his guide's words, the man steadied himself took a deep breath, gathered all of his courage, and did just as he was instructed. Watching intently, he then stepped with one foot over careful foot exactly where the guide had stepped until finally he passed through danger and on to safety. And then, just beyond the next bend, waited for him the most stunningly beautiful vista on earth, one that many had heard of but very few had seen. Now, as we've come to the conclusion of our series on Exodus, The Way Out, we now begin a new series, the next chapter of the Israel's saga, if you will, on the book of Joshua, which I've entitled The Way In. If Moses was about leading the people out, Joshua is about leading the people in. And we find in the opening two verses of the book of Joshua, chapter 1, that our protagonist in this story, the one who is the principal character of the book, bears his name, we find in the opening verse that he is in an equally precarious position as the man in our opening story. Joshua chapter 1 and verses 1 to 2 open this way. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I am about to give them. Now, in case you missed it, this is a crisis. This is a a, a total 
crisis moment in Joshua's life and in the life of Israel. Why? The opening line says it. After the death of Moses. Moses was larger than life to the Israelites, we must remember. Moses was their leader. He was their rock. He was the one who they looked to for guidance because Moses was, man's, was God's man. He had a direct relationship with the Lord. He spoke with the Lord as face to face. And so now Moses is dead. Not only is this a catastrophe for the nation, but for Joshua personally. Remember, Moses is Joshua's not only great leader, but he is his mentor and his friend. The one who Joshua had followed for literally his entire life, from when likely a teenager in Egypt where he was born, Joshua sees Moses come on the scene, a mighty great leader who who he watches as he confronts Pharaoh. And the one who he watched as he followed along, who had stretched out his staff and the Red Sea parted and the people walked through on dry ground. The one who later, when Joshua became Moses' personal aide, the one who Joshua would tag along just behind him when Moses would go on further up the mountain to meet with God face to face and then Joshua would be the first to see Moses come back down, his face literally glowing after having spoke with God. Yes, that Moses, that Moses, the greatest leader this world has ever seen short of Jesus Christ himself, is now dead. And the baton of leadership is now being passed on to Joshua. Now, I can't help but insert a little joke here about how Joshua maybe felt about himself, because uh, who's the only man who never had any parents? It's Joshua, right? Son of none. You're supposed to groan there. Okay, I even got a laugh. That's good. That's good. So if Gideon in our story felt a little insecure about his position being the least of the tribes and everything else, I can only imagine the insecurities that Joshua must have experienced in this moment, being being told that now this man that you have, I hope not idolized, but as close to it his entire life, he he has just aspired to even be anything like Moses, this incredible leader, He's now gone, and now, Joshua, you are to step into the place of Moses and lead these people. I can only imagine the troubled thoughts and fears and insecurities that came up within Joshua at this moment. To top it off, God's not just saying, continue to lead the people wandering in circles in the wilderness. No. He says to Joshua, now you go and do something that even Moses was unable to do. And what was that one thing? Enter and take the promised land. So now just imagine what Joshua must have been thinking. If the people didn't listen to Moses, what's going to make them listen to his aid? And if Moses couldn't rally the people to believe God's promise to then cross the Jordan and take their inheritance, how am I going to rally the people? And so we see here, everything was hanging in the balance. Would Israel have the faith and courage to take the land that God had repeatedly promised to give to them, beginning with Abraham and repeated every generation, I will give you this land, go out in faith and take it? Or would they once again shrink back in doubt and in fear as they had done before? And so what would Joshua do? How would he respond? 
And so here we see at this pivotal crossroad in Israel's history, we must pause for a moment to remember the vast journey that brought them to this point through the grand narrative that is the Exodus. Now, as I've related in many different points of the series in Exodus, we must remember that this is much more than just a great escape. The entire saga of the Exodus was also a foreshadowing of God's entire plan of salvation. And first, we see the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, they're enslaved in Egypt by a tyrant Pharaoh, who seems to take some sort of perverse pleasure in their suffering. And then the more that they try to resist him, the worse things get. They're entirely powerless to break free. And finally, we see in the opening pages of Exodus, the people's cries go up to God, and God hears them. And so they finally have come to the end of themselves. There's no way out of Egypt, and they call out to God. And so, too, we are born enslaved to sin, to a tyrant named Satan, who, who too, takes pleasure in our suffering. And make no mistake, he's the toughest master you'll ever serve. For sin takes us farther than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and costs us far more than we want to pay But it's once we realize our helpless position to break free from sin, we call out to God for his help and his salvation. Just as God was merciful to Israel and sent them a deliverer named Moses who led them out of captivity, so too God mercifully sends us a deliverer named Jesus, who set us free from sin, who paid the debt that we couldn't pay, who destroyed the power of Satan over us and led us from eternal death and into eternal life. But then, just as the story of Israel didn't end after crossing the Red Sea, so too the story of the Christian life does not end after trusting Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. There is more to come. There is much more ahead. For there is a journey of growth and of testing and of battle and, yes, of temptation. For just as being freed from slavery in Egypt is a picture of our salvation, so too wandering in the wilderness, as the children of Israel did for 40 years, is a picture of the temptation that we face to live a stagnant Christian life. One which is content to wander around in the wilderness of apathy, still dabbling in the sins and pleasures of the world, and not making forward progress into what God would have us do. And how does this happen? Well, for Israel, we remember the story when they first came to the Jordan River and they spied out the land. They sent the 12 spies. The 10 come back with an evil report, overriding the the two with the positive report. And listening to the 10, they then looked at the obstacles ahead of them with doubt and fear. And then out of that doubt and fear they blatantly disobeyed God's command to go forward and to take their inheritance. And the consequences? Well, we know, 40 years of desert wandering until that entire adult generation that disobeyed God passed away, save for two men, Joshua and Caleb. And so we see the consequences. And so too, many Christians come up to that next step of obedience in their Christian life that God has brought them up to. Something that is greater than their own ability to achieve. Something that appears fearful 
or that requires self-sacrifice, something that requires surrendering our own plans for our life to step into what God's plan for our life is. And at that point, rather than looking to God in faith and stepping forward with courage and obedience, they look only at the obstacle, shrink back, and end up living in a spiritually dry wilderness, going around in circles, repeating the same motions over and over again, and wondering why they're not going anywhere. Saved? Yes. Yes, for Christ's grace is all-sufficient, no works are required. But are they living in victory? No, they are not. For they are not maturing. They're just coasting through life with their fire insurance policy in hand, perpetual spiritual babies who never graduate from milk to meat, never coming of age spiritually to the place of real faithfulness and responsibility and courage and sacrificial love required to share the good news of Jesus with others. But thankfully, just as God didn't give up on Israel after their first failure, God doesn't give up on any of us either. For time and again, Time and again, God graciously brings us back to the Jordan River, back to that point of faith and obedience, and he says, trust me, believe me, go on. Go on in your faith, move forward and take your inheritance in the promised land, for I will give it to you. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be any battles. In fact, there will probably be more battles when you step forward in faith. Now, I know that might not be what you want to hear, but remember, in crossing the Jordan River, that meant Joshua and the children of Israel were going into a war zone. There was a hostile people in there, the Canaanites, and they were not happy about Israel coming to take their land. Who would be, right? This was their land, these were their cities, and here comes an invading army. They're ready to fight for their survival. There's battles ahead. And so, too, when we move forward in faith, we are facing an enemy, an adversary, who doesn't want us to take ground for God's kingdom, who doesn't want us to be expanding the borders of the kingdom. The only difference between Joshua's battles and ours is that ours are spiritual in nature. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul tells us about them. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, like it was for Joshua, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against, listen to this, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so our adversaries are spiritual adversaries, forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so now, fair warning at this point. When we move forward in obedience and faith to what God is calling us to, in our own strength, we are no match for the devil. He's powerful. He is cunning. He is crafty. And if we go up against him on our own wits and cunning, uh, we're going to get eaten for lunch. Because remember, he's a roaring lion looking for those he may devour. But here's the good news. Is that old, that old serpent, the devil, even though he's a roaring lion who, next to us, we don't stand a chance against him, he is no match for the God that we serve. And that's the difference, my friends. We go forward with God. If we go forward on our own, we're not going to win. But when we go forward with God, the adversary has to flee before us. Resist the devil, therefore, and he will flee from you. 
That is the word of the Lord. First John chapter 4, verse 4 tells us more. You, dear children, who are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So if God is with us, if God is in us, then he is greater than our adversary, and so we can move forward in confidence. Therefore, no matter how intense the battles are we face in this journey that we call the Christian life, we always have a pathway forward to victory. Always. 1 Corinthians 15.57 tells us how. Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is now in Jesus' footsteps, revealed to us in God's word, that like the man in the opening story, it is Jesus' footsteps that we must watch closely, carefully, intently, so that we can step exactly where he stepped, following in his footsteps and not carelessly tripping along on our own. And so as we begin this series in Joshua, my primary goal is to help each of us to stop wandering around aimlessly in a spiritually dry wilderness to realize that God has not only provided the way out of sin, as exemplified in the Exodus story, but he's also provided the way in to the abundant life of a conqueror in Christ. And this is the difference, my friends. It's not just about saving us from sin. It's saving us unto the abundant life that God wants to bless each one of his children with. And so to that end, we return now to Joshua chapter 1 and pick up where we began. Moses is dead. Joshua, son of Nun, he's shaking in his sandals. And here God calls Joshua to three specific things. If you follow along with me, let's read verses 2 to 4. Moses, my servant, is dead. This is the Lord speaking to Joshua. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. Now, this land description that's given, I think farmers might be interested in this because we're interested in land descriptions and we like boundaries and, and where things go. And so we have a slide here that I'd like to show you of where someone has uh, done some calculations to figure out exactly how big is this area that's described here that God is going to give to Israel. And so you can see on the picture behind me here that there's an area in purple with a purple boundary around it. And at the top, the heading says the promised land. Now, there's a couple of descriptions given in in the Bible of where God promises the land. The first is to Abraham. And you see that, that this is the covenant God made with Abraham. And so as you can see, the promised land covers a huge area. Now, if you notice the green area in here, This is the area that Joshua and and Israel conquered. So as you can see, they didn't take nearly all of the land that God had promised to give to them, right? In fact, there are some who have even calculated that the land is bigger than this, that it says up to the Euphrates River, which of course continues, the Euphrates River right there, it continues all the way here and into Iraq, you can see Iraq right here, that some, some scholars believe the area in fact goes from down here all the way across and into Iraq. So it's a vast region. Even if it's not that, we see that almost all of Syria 
was part of the promised land. So what happened? God promised to give them this huge area of land, and yet we see that they didn't take it all. What happened? Was God just being a little bit, um, how should we put it, over-enthusiastic in his promise? Was God just exaggerating how big this land was going to be a little bit? Or did something else happen? Did the children simply not claim the full boundaries of their inheritance? That's what I believe happened, and Scripture would indicate as much. And just as Israel failed to lay claim to their full inheritance that God promised to give to them, the Christian often fails in the same way, to lay claim to their full inheritance in Christ. As H.A. Ironside wrote, It is one thing to have a title to an inheritance, but it is quite another thing to make it one's own practically. We who are saved are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. But how much of our inheritance have we actually appropriated? How much do you really enjoy of that which is yours in Christ? Many of us live in doubt, trouble, and perplexity much of the time. We fail to enter into and enjoy that which God has given us in his Son. Now, I want you to think of it this way. Think of it like owning a library. Let's say that you own an entire library of books. Now, let me ask you the question about those books. Does simple ownership of all of those books automatically give you all of the knowledge within their pages in your head? Does it work that way? Don't you wish it worked that way? Right? Like for myself personally, I wish it worked that way. In my office over there, I have amassed a small library of books. And on occasion, when people come into my office, they'll look at all the books and go, Wow, have you read all of these? (laughs) And my reply is often something along the lines of, Well, I've read parts of all of them. (laughs) And even if that part might have just been the back cover, I've, I've read parts of all of them. But the reality, of course, is that though I technically own all of the books in my library, they all belong to me. They all have, you know, or most of them have Danny Greening written in the front cover or on the first page. The fact is that I do not have in my mind all of the riches of knowledge contained within their pages. I just don't. And it's much the same in the Christian life. Our glorious inheritance in Christ, God has already given to us but we have not yet laid claim to every aspect of all of that abundance. There is always more, much more, yet to lay a hold of. And now today, there may be some of you here who feel defeated or just stuck, perhaps struggling with some sin or just a lack of faith to act on what God is prompting you to do. And stuck in this place, you want victory, but you've resigned yourself to the fact that you're doomed to just continue going in circles, wandering aimlessly in this spiritually dry place. But God's word tells us it doesn't have to be this way. Ephesians 1 verse 3, which Ironside was referring to, says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but think about it. I know a lot of Christians 
who kind of have this attitude that they've got to die and go to heaven before they can begin enjoying their spiritual blessings in Christ. This life is just to be endured and trudged through because all the good stuff is just waiting on the other side. But notice the verse does not say that. The verse does not say who will bless us. The verse says what? Who has blessed us. You see, our inheritance in Christ is not just some future event that we have to wait to die to begin to enjoy. No, it's to be a current reality. You see, God did not save us just so that we could continue to live in doubt and fear and discouragement or apathy. No, he saved us so that, so that we could walk forward in faith to claim more and more of our rich inheritance in Christ. And yes, the full revelation will not come until glory, but that doesn't mean we can't enter into more and more and more day by day and day by day until we reach that full and glorious inheritance in heaven. That is what Christ has done for us. He saved us so that we can walk forward in faith to claim our rich spiritual inheritance in Christ. Why live in just one room when you own the entire mansion? Why read just one book when you own the whole library? And so it is with Christ. Dive into him. For every spiritual blessing is already yours in Christ. Incredible. Let's take hold of our inheritance. Number two, God calls Joshua to courage. This is what this passage is most famous for, verses 5 to 7. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. That's a mouthful right there. Stop and think about that. How was God with Moses? The same way I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give to them. Be strong and very courageous. Then we skip ahead to verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, do you think Joshua got the point? Do you think God made it clear to him? Now, in Scripture, when something is stated three times, the point is to make maximum emphasis and impact on what is being said. So, for instance, a a parallel example would be, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so, why say it three times? Isn't Isn't once enough? Yeah, God's holy, I get it. Why say it three times? It's to give maximum emphasis to God's holy, as if to say God simply couldn't become any more holy. That's how holy he is, three times. And so when God tells Joshua, not once, not twice, but three times, be strong and courageous. And then three times, in three different ways, but three times he says, I will be with you, I will not forsake you, Three times, do you think God meant it? Do you think he was just pulling Joshua's leg? Do you think he was just doing this to pump him up and then be like, all right, see you later? No, of course not. God meant it, and he said it three times to make sure Joshua got it. Be strong and courageous. Why? Because I will be with you. 
I'm not going anywhere. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So be strong and courageous. And now the question. Do you think Joshua needed that emphatic promise? You bet he did. You see, our natural tendency is to put Joshua up on this pedestal. You know, a hero of the Bible. But Joshua was just a man. He was just a man like us. I'd say he put his pants on one leg at a time, but they didn't wear pants back then, you know. But, you know, he, he was just like us. He put his sandals on one at a time. You know, he, he, he felt aches and pains. He felt doubt, fear, and discouragement. He doubted whether God would be with him. He felt the fear of the obstacles and the giants in the land that were before him. And yes, he experienced the discouragement from the words of those naysayers and critics around him saying, we can't do it, you can't do it. And he felt it just like we all do. And so why do you think God specifically addressed all three of those things? And then three times commands him, be strong and courageous. You see, God knew that Joshua was going to need all the strength and courage he could get for what lie ahead. And you know who else needs it? I do. I do. I need it not only every Sunday morning that I get up in this pulpit to preach. I need it every morning I open my eyes. I need it to be the leader, to be the husband, to be the father that God has called me to be. But you know what? There are plenty of days where I don't feel all that strong and courageous. And there's even days where I don't feel particularly close to God. And you may be shocked. You're the pastor. You must feel close to God 24-7. But you know what? There's moments that I don't. And Joshua had those moments too. And I bet you you do too. And that's exactly one of the reasons that, for me personally, I have Joshua 1-9 framed and up in my office as a constant reminder to me of God's promise that he made to me many years ago. Many of you you know this part of my story. Some of you won't. I was 19 years old when God confirmed to me his calling to go into full-time ministry. I didn't know what that meant at the time, if that was to be a pastor, a missionary, a youth pastor. I didn't know what. I just knew it was going to be full-time. And at that point, I had been working that summer as a program director at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp. And I was just neck deep in ministry. I'm seeing lives changed, boys and girls learning about the love of Jesus and responding. And I'm just loving it. It's awesome. And then halfway through the summer, we had a break week and I'm at home. And on that break week, Satan body checked me full force with the old temptation of pornography. And it happened in a moment of self-doubt and weakness and I ended up lying face down in the dark on my bedroom floor telling God that I quit. I quit. You've got the wrong guy. I am too weak. And you should find someone else. And in that moment, as I'm effectively trying to quit before I had even begun, God interceded. And something incredibly strange happened. Something that had never happened to me before. But I heard a voice in my head, not an audible voice, but a voice in my head in my own thoughts begin to answer every objection that I was giving to serving God that I could think of. And every time I'd say, I can't do it. Yes, you can. I'm not strong enough. With me, you will be. 
And it was just, it just kept going. And, and it got to the point where I began to think I was going crazy having an argument in my own head. Like, that's how it felt. And finally, I just, I just said, God, is that you? And the response was, well, who else would it be? <laughs> and, you know, God has a sense of humor. And then I'll never forget, once I knew, I'm like, wow, God, is this you really speaking to me? He said my name, and he said, Danny, I made you, I love you, and I will give you the strength you need to serve me. Trust me. And I still wasn't sure, and I still didn't know if this was just me talking to myself in my own head. And he affirmed it in a way that I don't always recommend, but this came from the Lord. He said, open your Bible. And I said, where to? And he said, just open it. And you got to remember, I'm lying in the dark in my room, face down on the floor. My Bible was right up beside my head. I flipped it open in the dark. I dropped my, my finger on a page. I turned on the lamp in my room. And my finger was resting on Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. And I read it. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And my friends, I can't tell you what that did for me. But God knew I needed it, just as he knew Joshua needed it thousands of years before. And I don't know how many thousands of times I've read that verse since, how many times I've quoted it to other people. I can only imagine how many times Joshua and all the battles to come fought back on that, that promise from the Lord and said, yes, I know it looks this way right now, but God promised and I believe him. I will continue to move forward. God knew that Joshua needed it. God knew that I needed it. And God knows that you need it too. And so today, I want you to know that whatever God is calling you to, you don't need to listen to doubt, to fear, to discouragement. You don't need to stay stuck wandering in the wilderness indefinitely because with God's abiding presence, you can move forward with strength and courage and confidence. For whatever may come in the spiritual battlefield, ultimate victory in Christ has already been guaranteed. It's already ours. A man named Herman Gockel relates a powerful story in his devotional, Daily Walk with God. He tells of a woman who is waiting nervously to enter into a life or death surgery. And a nurse was standing nearby as she was getting ready to enter into the operation and she saw the look of anxiety on the woman's face. And wanting to to just help her in some way, she gently walked over, laid her hand on her, and just asked her, Are you a Christian? And the ailing woman looked up with big eyes and said, Well, yes, I am. Why do you ask? Well, I couldn't help but notice how worried you look. But you need to know that you have nothing to fear. Just remember what it says in the Psalms. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. So, if you wake up in this hospital in a few hours, the Lord will be with you. And if you should open your eyes in heaven, you will be with the Lord. What do you have left to be afraid of? And a big smile came across the woman's face and she said, absolutely nothing. So, my friends, receive, embrace, and remember God's call to courage. For he will be with you wherever you go. And now the third and final call is the call to obey God's word. 
Verses 7 to 8 says, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Now, do you remember the opening story of the man climbing up in the Alps? When he was stuck on that treacherous path on the trail, to look to the left or to the right would have led to his inevitable slipping and falling to his death. But his salvation came in walking directly in the footsteps of his guide. Well, in the same way, this word is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path, isn't it? This word is to live by. And so it's as we meditate on this word, as we walk carefully in its guidance and in its instruction and in the word of the Lord, is where we find life. For to deviate from it to the left or to the right is to inevitably slip and lead to our own downfall. And so, my friends, there's a lot hanging in the balance here. We may think, ah, Bible, yeah, I do it when I get around to it. I can take it or leave it. You know, some weeks I'm good, some weeks I'm not. But friends, think about what's hanging in the balance here. What's hanging in the balance in this spiritual battle in which every one of us is engaged is the battle for the souls of our families and our children and our neighbors. It's not just about us. It's about God's plan in the world. Everything is hanging in the balance, my friends. And so to be trivial about God's word to be ah, laissez-faire, like I'll take it or leave it. I'll get around to it when I can. Friends, we need to focus. Everything is hanging in the balance. Every single day and night, God said to Joshua, meditate on this word. Not just in the day, think about it at night. Talk about it. Discuss it. And by everything, live in obedience to it. For it is only there that true and lasting success in life is found. And Joshua did just that. And so today, as we close, I want to encourage you. As God called Joshua, I want you to receive his call as well. The call to claim your spiritual inheritance. The call to courage and the call to obey God's word. For not only is this the way out of slavery to sin, but it is the way into the victorious abundant life in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your plan is incredible. Your ways are just beyond our ability to even begin to imagine the scope of, but we are the recipients, and for that we give you all thanks, and we glorify you for your incredible way of salvation. That it's not just about delivering us from sin, but that it's to give us the power of your presence to move forwards with boldness, with courage, with confidence to lay hold of the rich spiritual inheritance that you have already given to us. And so, Father, I pray that for anyone here today who recognizes that in their life they've been in a wilderness circling around, not getting anywhere, I pray, Lord, that coming back to that Jordan River, that moment of decision, that they will receive your call just as you gave it to Joshua. It's for us today. Be strong and courageous. Do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For I, the Lord your God, will be with you wherever you go.
And I pray, Lord, that in claiming that incredible promise, we will move forward in faith, in courage, and in obedience to live by your word. To live it out not just once in a while, but that day by day we would live one step at a time in careful obedience to your word, following carefully in the footsteps of Christ. For it is in this path that we find life, not just for today, but for eternity. And who knows the eternities of others who will be affected because of our faithful obedience today. And so, Lord, as we are going out from this place and into the battlefield outside the walls of this building, I pray, Lord, that we would go out in the confidence that you are with us and that through our obedience to you, others would come to know you as Lord and Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.